and thank you for joining us on ABA Unfiltered. I'm your host, Tim Crilly, and today we are joined by Carmen Torres, a clinical director from Blue Sprig, to talk about her clinic as well as bilingual treatment in ABA. So I'm really excited to uh, have Carmen join us to talk about this interesting topic. So Carmen, thank you for, thank you for coming on. Hi, thank you, team, uh, for having me. Could you uh, just real quick for those listening, maybe introduce yourself so people have a sense of who you are? Yes. Uh, my name is Carmen Torres. Like you mentioned, I'm a clinical director here in Edinburgh, Texas, right down in the border. Our clinic is one of the three, almost four clinics that form South Texas. We have right now through the pandemic, we are in phase two. So we are being able to provide both in-home and in-clinic services. And that's that's kind of like where I'm at. Okay. So you really said nothing about you and you only talked about your <laughs> clinic, which I've known you a little bit now. It doesn't surprise me. So <laughs> could you just give me one piece of information about yourself? Just I know it's all about the, the kids and the work, but just maybe just a little, little, little nugget. Well, I think that's something that is or that makes me different is that before Blue Sprig and before I was a PCBA, I was actually, I'm, I'm born and raised in Mexico. So I'm a hardcore Mexican, which is not the same thing as Texas Mexicans. So, okay, um, fair enough. That is a little bit different about me. It is one of the things that most, that I feel the most proud of because, and I always say I, I'm not Hispanic. I'm, I'm strictly Mexican. Mexican. Like I'm not, okay. I don't really have any other kind of background, but that, and I think that it correlates with everything. Like it makes everything that I am, that word to me, it means a lot because it takes over the way that I play, the way that I, the things that I like, the food that I eat, okay. um, how I interact. So yes. And how you approach work. Yes. In okay. How I approach work. Fair enough. Um, so can you, Tell me, how did you end up getting sucked into the, the BCBA world? What what attracted you to, to this? This is a very funny story, I think, um, because I started, my both of my parents are doctors. So I came to the United States to do my bachelor's and I wanted to be a doctor. And I did my bachelor's in, in biology with chemistry and I was pre-med and I was going to places being a doctor. And I realized in the middle of it that I didn't really think that I had it in me to be as good at least as my parents were as far as doctors. And I wanted to kind of like make my own lane and find my own things. So in the university here in, in Pan Am, that it's the one that, that I was going to, they had just opened uh, clinical psychology with ABA. And since I didn't have any background in psychology, my, my major was biology and chemistry. I heard that somebody said that I could get into the program easier if I put ABA. Okay. <laughs> so I applied. Did you know what it was? I didn't know anything. Okay, perfect. Um, and I was like, sure, I'll apply. If I don't like it, I'll just <laughs> go and take the classes. I'm already in. And I tried to push it as much as I could. Like they kept offering me like, oh, there's this house and you can go and work with this kid. And I was like, nah, I'm not... I don't really like it. Um, I always felt like I came all the way over here. I'm sitting in the United States. The least thing that I wanted to be taking care of children. Like, sure. I thought that it was very, it was very on the nose of like um, what I was here for. But eventually it came to the place in the program that it was like, well, you need to do your practicum or you're not going to sure. graduate. 
And my dad had helped me finance my education. So he was like, yeah, no, you're- Yeah, you're graduating, yeah. So I went and I did my practicum at the Rio Grande State Center, which is a facility for adults. And they live in there and they have all kinds of disabilities. And I, I remember walking in the first day and saying like, okay, I have to do this for 26 weeks. And I'm done. It's this is week one, and then 26, sure. and then I'm done. And then I fell in love with it. I just wow. felt. But it started with adults for you. Yes, it started with adults. Wow, that's very interesting. Do you get a chance? Do you have an opportunity to to work with any adults now, or is your clinic primarily children? It's primarily children. We do have uh, some adolescents, but it's primarily children right now. I love working with all ages. It was actually working with adults that I fell in love with working with children because I found that there was a lot of areas in which, man, if somebody would have gotten here sure. sooner. And I felt we wouldn't like, be here right now. Yes. Yeah. I felt like those were the kids that we didn't get to, we didn't get to help that we were working as a, with adults. So I, I really like both sides. Okay. And when did you um, come across Blue Sprig? I came across Blue Sprig when it was still in our area. It was still the shape of behavior. Oh, so okay. I so you, woke part- up, you woke up one morning and you were a Blue Sprig person. Got it. Okay. Yes, kind of. Well, yes. My, my contract, the first time it said the shape of behavior division of a loose break. And I was like, I really hope that I never have to answer any phones and be like, the shape of behavior. So uh, that's how I first got introduced. I had heard of the shape of behavior in our area. And then I remember that when I went to the interview with my area clinical director, uh, Megan, she told me like, we're transitioning, we're becoming sure. a new company, it's going to be bigger, it's going to be greater. And I was There's like, going to be a podcast someday. Yes, yeah, I'm sure. That was that was top of the line for her. And I remember that she was like, "Just so that you get an idea, their mission is to change the world for children with autism." And I was like, "Cool." <laughs> sure, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, yeah, and I was like, "Cool." Do you have insurance? Like, <laughs> you really want to have insurance? So. I don't think, and I was just having a conversation with her and I I was telling her like, I don't think that when I said, when I sat down in that interview and when I said yes, when they called me, I knew what was coming to me uh, or what, what that was going to mean. When I started working in the McAllen clinic, we had seven children. (laughs) That's all we had. And right now we have around 29, 30. 29. Wow. That's really great growth. That's that's amazing. With that good transition, would you say that the primary makeup of your clients are Spanish speaking or is it a smaller percentage? I would say that the majority is bilingual. Okay. What what I encounter during intakes and, and like just meeting the families is that they will more frequently say, oh, language spoken at home. And for the most part, the people that are honest, they'll tell me both. Yeah. Uh, people that are, I don't know, that they feel a little bit more shy in the intake, sure. they'll be like, English. we speak English. And then uh, the kid will arrive and walk into the clinic and we'll be like, oh, come over here. And the first thing like they'll turn and be like, Awa. And I was like, okay. Or in the first parent training or family guidance session, mom will be like, oh, yes, he's having uh, difficulty following direction. Oh, it's because you're telling him, come. We, we we always call him like, Ben, Ben, Ben. So it's like, uh, I thought you said you only spoke English. Yeah, speak English, yes, yes. yes. And I think that it's because our region, a lot of the times, doesn't realize how immersed both cultures and both languages are. We just really are, yeah. You know, a lot of families kind of go in and out of both, I would imagine. 
Yes. So with that, what sort of challenges do you feel like it creates for, for you and your staff? You know, how much instruction do you do in Spanish? How much data collection has to be presented? You know, goal writing and all that is, is in Spanish up front to, to ensure that everyone involved is able to process the information. Or do you do you not look at it that way? Yes and no. Yes, uh, I don't write the goals in Spanish. Well, me being Mexican and, and Spanish being my first language, I don't think that I ever not think in Spanish. Spanish. So there's always that part that it's there. It's part of the makeup of everything and how I approach a lot of the things that I do. But how much of the instruction is given to the therapist? I would say like at least 50%. Okay. Uh, 50 to 70% of the instructions of the everyday conversation of the redirection uh, of the feedback of the it it's in Spanish. Just because like it's also how we feel more comfortable. I sure. think that from my clinic there's maybe one person that isn't like Spanish speaking or maybe two but they understand what I say when I say it. In sure. Mind. Just through the tone and the look in your eye. Yes. Or they, they might just not like, be fluent or they feel like shy saying it, but they do understand. And yeah. a lot of the times it really becomes like a little bit of a, of a headache because it's so split. So I'll go from a parent training that is fully in Spanish to a direction that is in English. And right now that we're in homes, I can be speaking to the therapist in English. And then mom arrives and she asks me a question. So I have to be answering in Spanish. And then we go back to like teach that in English. And then it goes back in Spanish. It's just like a... Yeah. So you, you're able to accommodate for both staff and, and families and yes. certainly provide caregiver support in whatever language feels most comfortable for that family. Yes. And it really goes to to the social validity of the whole thing, because I know that a lot of the times people really ask about that, like, well, won't that affect the child to develop language, especially with early learners that we're working on communication? Won't that like kind of mess them up or confuse them? And I think that I think that that was something that it was very strongly believed before. And what we've come to realize as a region is that kids typical and neurotypically diverse, they grow up with these two languages. That is, mm-hmm. that is their normal. Their normal is to hear words in, in both languages coming sure. and going. And if we were not to provide that opportunity then we're really teaching them to something that makes no sense to them. Sure, because it's not what's happening when they when they leave the building or they're, yeah, yeah that, that makes total sense. Do you feel that you encounter any cultural challenges as it relates to the perception of therapy or the services that you're providing? Do, do you run into any stigmas that, that become problematic throughout some of the families we work with? Yes, I think that just because language might unite us like in 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 the sense of like english unites anglo-speaking countries but not all anglo-speaking countries have the same culture and it's the same thing for for spanish-speaking countries or or regions like when i say like i'm mexican there's a lot of my clients that speak spanish but they are not mexican and and they might either have other backgrounds or they have grown up their whole life here and their Spanish is different than my Spanish. Sure. 
and their culture, their beliefs, the food that they eat, what they celebrate or what they do, it's, it's a little bit different. And we have to be accommodating of all of that. And the way that therapy is so intense and a lot of the times very immersed in all of that, like we have to make their culture part of our culture so that we can teach that culture and that social environment for them to feel comfortable, the kids sure. in, in those kinds of scenarios as a culture a lot of the times. And I'm not, I don't want to generalize and just absolutely. Make- make a, a stereotype of all of us but a lot of the times we're loud a lot of the times um, no, i can be pretty loud too <laughs> yeah we might be loud we are quite intrusive like this pandemic has really been difficult for us mm-hmm. that we hug and we kiss like just that's our general uh, salutation like we go and we kiss yeah. so those kinds of components we come from big families a lot of the times or we make a big family like even mm-hmm. if your family might be small there was this one time one of the kids and i came to the first intake and the kid calling me like tia tia because which means aunt because every time that he sees a new person mom tells him to call them tia like mm-hmm. this is your tia so he saw me there and he was like, are you my tia too? And I was like, no. Sure. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> sure. Let's go. Um, also the way that, you know, we relate with food to a lot of things. Like I know that right now that we have in-home services, it has been really hard. I've gotten so many phone calls of moms. Like, can you just talk to whoever you need to talk? I need to be able to feed them. Like this is just. Oh, like where the rules about the rules about RBTs and yeah. things like that. Yeah. That's. That's a great point, you know, and, and, and it's a tricky one because sometimes that hard line saying no can actually be worse because of the perceived insult, you know, to that, that yeah. person offering, you know, and I think that's a that's a really fair point. But rules are rules, I guess. I don't know. Yes. I, I mean, but if no one reports it, who's going to know? <laughs> yes. And it's just the way that we that we grew up and that I feel like also a lot of the time families do feel so much more comfortable. I have a a family in particular that always tell me, and we've seen an increase lately in our percentages of family guidance that, and the hours that we've been able to, to meet. And one of the families was telling me like, you know what is really important for me during family guidance? And I'm like, I don't know what. And they're like, I know you. I feel like I know you. I know where you come from. I know know what you've been it's good, you know, and, and I can imagine families in a, in, in a situation, you know, finding out a child has autism, it's, it's stressful, obviously. But if you're in, a, in an environment where there's a, you know, a, a language barrier, the fact that you can add that element and you and, and your entire team can do that, it must be just an extra sigh of relief for families that desperately need that. So that's that's a fantastic thing you guys are able to provide. So along those lines, what type of community outreach are you guys able to do from both a making sure families are finding the services they need, but also, you know, maybe recruiting a future workforce, uh, people that would never, just like you, would never know that it even existed or they have a skill or, or something that might be perfect for, for this line of work. Are you guys able to, and I know it's a little different right now, but, you know, in, in the community, what sort of approaches do you guys use? We do. We try to maintain relationships with our university, uh, that it's here. And just actually one of the big strengths that we have here in our community is its parent groups, like parents that because of the lack of resources and because of the lack of, of a community, they've made it upon themselves to create those communities. Wow. And 
some of the big groups that are in our area have language that is like you can really tell because there's some ones that are just like English speaking groups and then sure. there's like the Spanish speaking groups and and those really have made up and and it's that word of mouth from those families that has in part helped us grow as much as we have in the area mm-hmm. because they have found that this has worked as an ABA and that this place is a place where they can that they can call home because we're able to cater to those things. We, especially earlier on that they didn't know that we could do that before, we would have families that had either made their peace with the fact that he's not going to understand what I talk to him or when I speak to him or when, you know, his grandmother speaks to him because they told me that I have to make a choice and They've told me that the right choice is English and that's what I need to speak to him. And just kids and, and families that really thought like my kid is not going to be able to communicate with us and, and understand some of those things. And especially we even had a family that it was their intent, like they were here because of work, that's work, but mm-hmm. they weren't planning to stay in the United States. Like they were planning to go back to Mexico. That's where their family was. And it made absolutely no sense whatsoever to teach this child all these communication skills in a language that they will probably not really never sure use as they grow up. Yeah. Yes. So everything like we've gone to actually, you know, teaching all the little intrinsic things about language, like jokes or, you know, just things like that, that we've had the opportunity to teach. And it does take like a whole army and a whole like planning behind it and we saw it initially we noticed there was this child and they were only spanish speaking and because we weren't really prepared initially to how can how were we going to deal with that in the schedule it ended up being one of the therapists that was assigned to this child and she did not know spanish mm-hmm. i had cards made for her and like that would say like this is what you need to say and this is the answer that needs to come out <laughs> so just like read it like i would write it phonetically like this is how it kind of has to sound so she was asking something like i don't know uh tell me something that you wear or something like that sure. and the child answered but in like her first language was Spanish. That's all that she really knew. So she answered and she answered like really quickly. And I was in the room and the therapist thought that I wasn't paying attention. So she just went, that sounds about right. And she was like, hold on. And she had not answered anything like relatively close to her answer. She was like, that sounds about right. Let's move along. And I was like, what do you mean that sounds about right? That has nothing to do with it. And she's like, I don't know. I didn't understand, but she seemed confident. It must have been right. It must have been right. And I was like, you wouldn't do that if it was English, you know, because you know this language and you would have run an error correction procedure and, you know, and we need in true Blue Sprig fashion, if we're talking about leveling the playing field for all, it's for all, not just the ones that we understand or that speak the language that is the most convenient to us. And, you know, it does take an army and it does take the therapist to push themselves harder and, you know, we've had therapists that it's like, what is it that you call this thing again? Because I call it like, and then we all start coming up with like, I call it this, you call it sure. that. Just trying to figure out what's the name that we're all going to be in agreement that we're all going to call it like this. It has taken, I mean, great, great therapists, very flexible, 
very willing to embrace the whys and the why nots um, mm-hmm. and just the staff because my area clinical director, you know, Megan, she doesn't speak Spanish herself, but she has seen the, the need to support these families and, and to provide us, the bilingual ones, with all of the supports. What do you need? Like, how can I help you? How can I be of assistance so that you guys can reach out and do what you guys need for these families? And everything from making sure that we conduct our interviews in, in Spanish, making sure that we're able to provide family guidance in Spanish, everything that they might be needing. So, no, and, and I think it's great. And I think you brought up a great point about, you know, just the ability that the team gives you to be able to do that. And I know from a from a mission standpoint, that's obviously very important to Keith and other folks in leadership positions. So it's great to hear that it's actually happening in, in the real world. So uh, I, I really appreciate you taking a, a couple minutes to to chat about, you know, your, your community, your, your clinic and your people that, you know, you get to work with day in and day out. Before I let you go, one question. So I need to put on your BCBA hat for a second. I don't know if you ever take it off, but I need you to make sure it's still on. It's a yes or no question. And I would like an operational definition to support your answer to the question. So if you answer yes, I need to know why. If you answer no, I need to know why. Got it? Okay. Is a hot dog a sandwich? No, it is not a sandwich because a sandwich requires different type of bread that is loaves and it has two different breads. And the set and the hot dog is together. The, so yes, it's not. Yes, it's not. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Thank you, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, we've um, we've had an array of answers. So when when this is all said and done, we'll we'll definitely have the definitive data on on whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich with many many operational definitions. So <laughs> that's what I'm really looking forward to most about completing this the series on on a ABA unfiltered. So uh, Carmen, thank you so much for joining, and for those of you tuning in again, thank you for for checking us out, and you know keep an eye out for uh, future episodes. Thank you. Thank you.